Welcome to QR Code, an LGBTIQA health podcast made by queers discussing diverse and intersecting topics. QR Code is created and produced on Wurundjeri land in the studios of 3CR in Fitzroy, Nam, Melbourne. My name is Anya Saravanan. Hi, Fury. Hi. Thank you for coming in. Not like I have much choice in the matter. Well, thank you anyway. You're welcome. So this questionnaire... Which one? The one that helps us figure out if you're trans or a butch lesbian. Oh, yes. You skipped one of the questions. Which one? Oh, the one that asks, how do you feel about having sex like a woman? Ah, oh, yes. Can I ask why you skipped it? Well, when you can tell me what sex like a woman looks like, I will be able to tell you how I feel about it. And if you do go on hormones, how will you feel about having more masculine traits? How do you mean? A receding hairline, a lower voice, facial hair. Are you saying women don't have facial hair? Are you saying you don't think facial hair is masculine? I'm not saying I can't comprehend that society perceives facial hair as masculine. I'm saying that facial hair, a low voice, they're not inherently masculine. Plenty of women have those things and they define femininity as much as anyone. So what you're saying is... What I'm saying is whatever form my body takes will be non-binary. Because I'm non-binary. You just heard an audio excerpt from the graphic memoir, I Don't Understand How Emotions Work, by acclaimed poet and writer, Fury. In today's episode of QR Code, I speak to Hermay Fong, a human rights advocate and researcher, and Asiel Adan-Sanchez, doctor, poet and advocate. Hermay, Asiel and I will be discussing what access to healthcare for trans and gender diverse folks looks like. Here's Hermay. My name is Hame. I am a trans woman. I'm also a, uh, I describe myself as a professional SJW a lot of the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I've worked in disability and LGBTIQ plus advocacy, policy research, project management sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so mostly in public and a bit of community sector. Some of my work has included reworking and developing guides on inclusive language, um, inclusion in sport for transgender diverse people. I also did a guide for media on how to respectfully report on transgender diverse people because they get it wrong a lot. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So do you want to maybe talk to me about your experiences as a trans person Mm. navigating the healthcare system? I know it's a very big question, Mm. (laughs) but if you have any specific examples of how that's, that's affected your uh, experience of trying to access healthcare. Yeah, um, most of them have been neutral. I've had some clunkers, and a lot of that comes down to gatekeeping, mm-hmm. um, particularly around things like mental health. So, where there might be mental health professionals who assume that because you're trans, your transness is the core of your mental health issues, whereas it's like, no, 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 I have completely separate childhood emotional trauma. Mm-hmm. Like And often there's a tendency, and it also touches on um, my disabilities as well, where they might assume that, like, there's a tendency to assume that just because you fall into one group or a different group or you have this or that, that mm. it's why you're having issues or troubles. That's kind of in the mental health space, and it's really interesting um, hearing about what's coming out of the Royal Commission at the moment. Mm-hmm. In terms of other health barriers... I found most of my issues have been around 
some health professionals being strangely attached to the idea that I'm a he or him and quite deliberately writing that down on mm. referral letters and stuff like that, mm. um, which is quite strange because at the same time I can go to the same clinic and I will be asked by another doctor, why haven't you had a pap smear done? Yeah, wow, okay. I mean, you know, healthcare for trans people isn't obviously just about accessing hormones, for example. I'm talking about things like getting the flu medication and, mm. um, you know, calling a nurse for help. And that sort of everyday medical issues that the whole population faces. Mm. And do you think there's a particular struggle for trans people in that sense? Absolutely. And I think, so there are different layers to it. And it's, there are different experiences depending on whether you're um, binary, non-binary, agender, and depending on your presentation and how people read you, mm. and also whether if you have the paperwork that mm. services will recognise. And it's particularly sort of nerve-wracking and anxiety-inducing the first time you approach a service after, like, with the paperwork to update their records, mm -hmm. because you never know how they're going to respond to it. Mm -hmm. um, Best case scenario, they're just like, oh, okay. And they just update the paperwork. Mm. No fuss, no questions. And I've had some good experiences like that. And then other times it just leads to slightly awkward questions. I remember seeing a dermatologist once where the first time after my gender presentation changed, she was like, oh, have you had the surgery yet? I'm, like, oh. <laughs> I'm here about something completely different. Yeah. Why do they think that's an okay question? I mean, I suppose that it's, sort of feeds into my next question as well, mm. you know, as an overall structural change for medical professionals. Yeah, what is the sort of change that you're hoping that the medical profession would introduce or what kind of training do you think they should be provided with so that these sorts of questions don't get asked? There's some really basic training and very, very basic guides which are just useful to have around and make sure that staff are aware of with sort of larger medical organizations, particularly when you talk about hospitals, you have mm -hmm. like hundreds of staff to work with and train and it's possible. Like it can be done, but it needs a concerted effort. It needs leadership as well mm. and a willingness to recognize problems as well as a willingness to apologize for where you've gone wrong. Mm. And I think one of the things which I think about as well is there aren't necessarily clear complaint or feedback pathways. So the most I see in terms of complaint or feedback pathways at most medical services are those um, those buttons with like the green or red smiley faces on them. Mm, yeah. Which is... Like rate your day today. And mm. I come from a research background and to me these are utterly useless. Mm, 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 mm. And I suppose even if they're this, that sort of feedback processes or places where you can sort of make complaints to... Would there still be barriers that prevent trans and gender diverse folks from accessing those feedback options? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there is quite understandable. Sometimes it's unwillingness and sometimes it's just you just don't know how your complaint is going to be received. Mm. And the last couple of years I spent doing research around sexual assault complaint pathways. And like some of it depends on word of mouth. So if you have positive experiences and you talk about these positive experiences, more people are likely to access these pathways. Mm -hmm. And these aren't just formal pathways. They can be informal ones. They can be internal or external to the health service. But I think sometimes 
there are enough bad experiences for people to not be willing to access complaint or feedback pathways. Mm. And I think particularly if there aren't things like commitments to inclusiveness and commitments to getting things right and very genuine commitments, then the likelihood of accessing those pathways is low. Mm. So having them, I think, is very, very important, but it's it's not in itself the solution, but I think it's an important part. And I think it's an important step in having those pathways actually accessible mm. because mm. a lot of transgender diverse people wouldn't access them. Mm. Someone like me would. Yeah. <laughs> Repeatedly, if necessary. Yeah. I mean, accessibility is something that comes up over and over again. Mm. In transgender diverse communities, there are very high rates of neurodiversity and mm. mental health issues. Mm. And I fall under both cohorts. Um, like, I'm autistic, I'm ADHD, I'm mentally ill. And each of those aspects of me can, and aspects of many transgender diverse people, mm. can present different barriers in terms of how to navigate systems which have been one thing is they've been built for the kind of people that most of these systems are usually catered for Mm -hmm. and these are people who i think won't necessarily have much hesitation in accessing these services because Mm -hmm. they haven't been screwed over them by them or they haven't had such bad experiences that they might be unwilling to access any medical care whatsoever Mm And then on top of that, if they've been designed and are operated by, say, neurotypical folk, it presents at times additional communication barriers. Mm-hmm. And you can also have this across um, other disabilities as well. Like I know that in the public health system, deaf and hard of hearing people have really terrible experiences at times. Mm. And anyone who requires an interpreter in the public health system Mm. or even the private health system often have terrible, terrible experiences. And there's still a long way to go to make sure that any health service caters for not just your cis, abled folk. Bodies, yeah. Yeah. You're listening to QR Code, a queer health podcast produced at 3CR. Today's episode is on access to healthcare for trans and gender diverse folks. You've just heard from Hame Fong, and we now have Dr. Asiel Adan Sanchez continuing the conversation. So, my name is Asiel Adan Sanchez. I was born and raised in Mexico and moved to Australia about 10 years ago now, so time definitely flies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm primarily, I guess, my day to day job is as a general practitioner, so I'm working in Melbourne's West. And I've always been based around Melbourne's West, really. I really love the sense of multiculturalism it has. Um, within my practice, I focus a lot on kind of mental health, sexual health, LGBTIQ health, kind of in general, and um, HIV medicine. Outside of that, I also do a fair bit of advocacy, mainly through Minus 18. So I'm part of the board of directors there and have been there for a couple of years now, which is mm. fantastic. It's a great mm. organization to work with. And I also write on the side whenever I get the chance, write some poetry and some essays. And mm. that's also uh, a very yeah good way of winding down, I suppose. I have a very fraught relationship with the word queer specifically. Um, the reason being is that as a person of color, it 
never necessarily encapsulated the more cultural aspects of, of my queerness, let's just say. And it's rooted very much in kind of um, white Western ideals, I suppose. Um, in a way that it absorbs some of the other gender nonconformity and queerness, I suppose, that's inherent to many other cultures. Um, and we tend to only access those histories and those cultures through this kind of queer lens without really engaging with the historical and, you know, sociocultural mm. context. Um, so I suppose queer is a bit of a double-edged sword because for me it allowed me to, let's say, explore different boundaries of sexuality, gender relationships, etc., etc. Mm. But at the same time, um, there was always this kind of acute knowledge that it, it didn't necessarily encompass all of, all of it. Mm. And particularly when it comes to to gender. So let's say for, for, for me, my non-binary, gender fluid, whatever you want to call it, identity, a lot of that is rooted in paying homage to women because I never really identified with a Mexican masculinity. Uh, to me, Mexican masculinity was essentially a place of violence, whereas Mexican femininity, on the other hand, was a place of strength in a place of vulnerability mm. and both of them just kind of came together in a way that I hadn't really experienced otherwise. So a lot of that essentially gets a bit erased when we use labels like queer or let's say just kind of broadly speaking non-binary or transgender. All of those kind of cultural richness gets uh, subsumed into it without mm. necessarily giving the space to explore what it really means. And how does it feel to navigate this identity, however you you know identify yourself, in the medical profession? Yeah, that's a bit of a tricky question. Um, look, I find that, um, let's say, the younger, newer generation of doctors and medical students I get along with incredibly well. Um, I think a lot of them are they're accepting of queerness in a personal setting. The difficulty is when that bleeds into the professional setting of things. Mm. So let's say I'm more than comfortable. I'm, I'm out to most of my colleagues in regards to sexuality. But in regards to gender, that's almost seen as an um, mm. unprofessional kind of thing. I can't mm. be explicitly gender non-conforming in the workplace without getting questioned about it from, mm. you know, literally everyone I kind of come in contact with. In terms of the way you dress and is that... Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, in terms of just how I present myself, yeah, essentially, okay. the whole way through. I remember when I was kind of still working in the hospital, I one one time I decided to kind of push things a little bit further and wear um, nail polish. Mm-hmm. I love wearing nail polish. It just mm-hmm. brightens my day. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and literally kind of every single interaction that I have with another health professional was a question around why I was wearing kind of nail polish. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I just, you know, I like it. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. fine. Um, but, uh, at no stage was a question about it by the patients. The patients were just kind of like, yeah, it's there. Didn't really raise the point, didn't really question it, didn't make yeah. a thing out of it. Mm. Um, and from my other colleagues' experiences of, uh, who are trans and gender diverse within the medical space, um, they do find that a lot of that pushback essentially comes from the medical profession, medical mm-hmm. school, medical administrators, rather than from, you know any explicit homophobia or transphobia or mm. any forms of prejudice from, from patients. Yeah. yeah, and from what I've heard, the medical profession is still quite a conservative profession. I would I completely agree, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one of the reasons why I enjoy general practice so much is because you do 
get rid of a lot of those really kind of bullshitty systems. Mm. Um, you're no longer kind of working in this big hospital machine thing. Mm. Where, um, there's that kind of hierarchy inherently built into it. Mm. Uh, and I think everyone's kind of chatting about, um, you know, flattening the hierarchy and making, you know, everyone really approachable, et cetera, et cetera, mm. which is great. But that, her- that, let's say, power differential is just embedded in how the, the, the structure works. Yeah. And how do these sort of structural factors limit accessibility to healthcare for patients, especially trans and gender diverse patients? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Unfortunately, it depends a lot on whoever's at the top, if that mm. makes sense. Okay. I've seen instances where you have a really well-informed um, health professional, essentially at the top of the team as a consultant, and they essentially lead by example, and they're very careful to navigate um let's say uh someone's gender identity Mm -hmm. in a in a you know sensitive and respectful manner um similarly i've seen instances where the kind of person at the top is not so great (laughs) Mm. and it really makes your life difficult because you become kind of the in-between man and in kind of navigating the patient's needs and Mm. navigating what your consultant says or gives priority to or doesn't give priority to or Mm. speaks about you know patient in in um other interactions with health professionals, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, so unfortunately, there's, because of, let's say, that inherent nature of that um, hierarchy, it's difficult to challenge some of those aspects when you don't have someone who's particularly, you know, inclusive or um, is following, you know, best practice at, at, at the top of that hierarchy. Mm. And one thing that came up a lot when I was researching this topic is what's called the informed consent model. Can you explain to me what that is? Sure. Um, So the informed consent model is essentially a model for trans and diverse people to access medical affirmation um, without having the medical profession be as big of a gatekeeper as it historically has been. Mm -hmm. So let's just say back um, the the previous model that was kind of practiced and that is still practiced, unfortunately, in in many places, is that you do have to undergo a gender assessment by a specialist. Most of the time that tends to be a psychiatrist and an endocrinologist. Perhaps other health professionals are also kind of involved in the meantime. Mm -hmm. And until you get that assessment kind of done and cleared, um, you won't necessarily get access to gender affirmation that you need. So for very obvious reasons, that becomes incredibly stressful and difficult because mm-hmm. by the time someone who's trans or gender diverse reaches the point to where they want to access medical affirmation, they've already processed a lot of those things and have obviously questioned themselves to the nth degree and have understood their own gender identity in a way that um, means that they're ready for essentially gender affirmation. Mm-hmm. And what that process does is kind of takes them back to the very beginning and then forces them to, you know, for example, in the really old school way, it was uh, live as your affirmed gender for, you know, like two years, and then you can access gender affirmation hormones. Right. It's like, <laughs> mm. uh, so it, it's a very kind of full on type of um, process. Uh, I should also say, I guess, from my own experience, um, my gender affirmation was purely social. It wasn't necessarily anything kind of medical. Mm-hmm. So I haven't necessarily experienced it firsthand, but mm-hmm. let's say I've experienced it from the health professional side of things, I suppose. Um, The nice thing about the informed consent model or the revolutionary thing about the informed consent model is that it essentially takes away the locus of power from the health professionals and as gatekeepers. 
and this and tries to mitigate that and really empower the community to make their own decisions about their their bodies and the mm. type of gender affirmation that they would like to have. Mm. So the process, let's say, is now primarily led by general practitioners. So mm-hmm. it's a lot more kind of community based. Um, there is, a, let's say, a certain assessment involved with it, but it's no longer that ridiculous, you know, kind of hurdle that you have to go through to actually get those uh, access to those gender affirmation. It's more about explaining um, the concerns and the priorities that the patient or, you know, the trans and the best person would like, uh, the type of affirmation that they are seeking. So, for example, again, it might be just social affirmation. After a period of time, they might just decide that social affirmation is good enough for them. Mm. It might be medical affirmation through hormones, um, or it might be surgical affirmation. So, kind of teasing that out with um, the patient. And I think the role of the health professional really becomes more about navigating the health system with the patient, Mm -hmm. rather than putting this barrier that says, you know, you have to tick these boxes before you're allowed to access mm. the affirmation that you would like. Yeah, so working alongside the patient instead of on behalf of them. That's okay. exactly right. So um, making sure that, let's say, their their priorities are addressed and if their priority is medical affirmation, mm. uh, then we have a chat about the different types of medical affirmation that are available, mm. what might work for them, what... Um, the let's say side effects are what things we need to be monitoring Mm -hmm. what blood tests we need to organize and what referral pathways we need to pursue kind of moving on from there Um, it doesn't necessarily get rid of all the gatekeepers because at the end of the day you still have to have an assessment by uh, an endocrinologist and a psychiatrist at some some stage down the line Mm -hmm. would be ideal to actually get those assessments done but at the same time um, it's not necessarily the first step before assessing accessing um, gender affirmation essentially what does that mean? So um, prior in the prior model, um, you had to go through those specialist assessments first before uh-huh, uh-huh. having any access to gender affirmation. Mm. Now it's more about um, exploring those um, priorities. And if that's, let's say, hormonal affirmation, for example, mm-hmm. uh, giving access to gender affirmation and then making the referral to a specialist if right. it's required. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, it sounds like a great model. But in practice, what has your experience of it been like? I think overall it's a huge improvement over the the previous model. Mm -hmm. The reason being is that the medical system is just not equipped or resourced for, you know, um, having all these specialist assessments first before accessing any type of gender affirmation. Mm -hmm. And people were waiting for, you know, up to two years to just get that initial assessment, um, let alone going through the whole assessment itself. Mm. Um, so I think it has improved, let's say, access to healthcare. Mm. It's still not necessarily a perfect model. So if there's uh, more complexities in that person's background, be it medically, socially, uh, or mental health-wise, then we still have to essentially get that assessment first before we try and do the gender affirmation side mm. of things. So let's say at the end of the day, I guess there's still an element of gatekeeping from the medical profession. Um I mean, ideally, the best thing would be if someone wants to access essentially gender affirmation. I see it very much like accessing, for example, the pill, you know. Mm. Um, it's a similar type of you know, hormone. Um, you go to the GP, you get a bit of a, well, ideally, <laughs> not normal GPs do this, but you should get a bit of a chat about, you know, side effects, what to expect, what options are there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you make the best decision that's for you. Mm. Um, and I think that the process should be kind of streamlined to, to head more along that pathway. And uh, informed consent is a great first step. 
but we still need to, let's say, reduce some of those barriers to accessing healthcare. Mm. And we're still incredibly under-resourced. Unfortunately, this is not an area that most GPs necessarily know about. And unfortunately, I've had quite a few experiences with other colleagues where they're um, well-intentioned, they're not necessarily discriminatory per se, but they're just not educated enough to provide any kind of form of access or referral or information or like literally anything. Um, mm. So there's been instances where that discrimination has been there because the GP is just not well-trained enough. Not equipped enough, yeah. That's right. And it's not necessarily because it's outside their, their scope of skills, is that they just are not educated about it. Mm. Mm. I suppose the other thing that the informed consent model still struggles a little bit with is surgical affirmation. Mm-hmm. Um, that is still uh, a very difficult place to, to access. Um, so you still essentially have to go through the referral pathways and long waiting lists, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. It's still not under PBS by any means. So a lot of people have to pay, you know, upwards of 10K to access essentially what's life-saving surgery for some people. Mm. Um, so essentially having a bit more of that structural support around it so things are covered under PBS, things are covered under Medicare would be absolutely fantastic. And hopefully the the ideal model would be, let's say, to have... Uh, this informed consent model where someone obviously goes to their GP and has a chat about gender affirmation, gets information about the options. Everything's PBS subsidized. If they require referrals, they're obviously kind of um, more available through public systems. If they require more specialist assessments, that they're not so expensive and that they're not waiting, you know, ages for that referral to go through. Um, and they can come back to their GP who, to tidy up all their avenues of care, essentially. Mm. I think that would probably be the most ideal situation where it reduces the barriers to healthcare, but at the same time makes everything fairly accessible to it. You've been listening to QR Code with Anya Saravanan in conversation with Hamei Fong and Dr. Asiel Adan Sanchez. Listen and download our episodes from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code and follow us on Facebook at QR code 3CR. QR code would like to thank the city of Yara for their financial support and the community radio network for getting the program out to you. Our theme music is Ritual for Transformation, produced by Michele Veshaw. Next time on QR Code, George Maxwell will be talking about family violence and intimate partner violence in LGBTIQA communities. Thank you for listening, and we will be going out with Big Art Museum by June Jones. You can find June's music on all the usual music platforms. Mm-hmm.